Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Mixed messages. NATO says there's no evidence Russian troops are withdrawing. Ukraine Unity President Zelensky holds a national day amid the tensions and China's command. Beijing tells Hong Kong to contain its COVID outbreak. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. Thank you for joining us this Wednesday, a day of pageantry under pressure. Ukrainian citizens are celebrating their day of national unity, a show of solidarity in troubled times, despite a lack of certainty over Russia's next steps. The big question remains, what is Russia doing with its troops? NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying that Moscow must provide proof that troops are retreating. In fact, they see the opposite, even as President Putin signals he's willing to give diplomacy more time. Joining us this hour with his take, former Ukrainian president Petra Poroshenko, who led the nation after the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and remains the opposition party leader. The security crisis in Europe, of course, remains pivotal for investor sentiment too. U.S. stock market futures cautious, as you can see there, after a snapback rally yesterday tied to hopes of that troop withdrawal. Some of that optimism leaking away today, as you can see, in a muted session across Europe, despite a higher close across Asia. The real fear gauge remains the energy complex. Oil still hovering near eight-year highs. Brent crude close to $95 a barrel, as you can see there. That's adding to the panic over rising prices more broadly. Data today saw UK inflation hit a 30-year high, while prices of goods leaving factories in the United States now rising at a near record pace. A worried Wednesday all round, but we have you covered. Let's get to the drivers. Amid the threat of invasion and with 150,000 Russian troops surrounding his country, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has declared a day of unity. It comes as Russia releases video they say shows tanks and troops returning from Crimea on a train after exercises. But speaking ahead of a meeting of NATO defense ministers, Jens Stoltenberg said he's not seeing signs of a pullback. We have heard the signs from Moscow about readiness to continue diplomatic efforts. But so far, we have not seen any de-escalation on the ground. On the contrary, it appears that Russia continues the military build-up. And a new Ukrainian intelligence report shared with CNN shows the government believes the current Russian troop level is not enough to effectively invade Sam Kaili is in Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine near the Russian border. And Melissa Bell is following the NATO meeting in Brussels. Thank you both for joining us. Sam, I'll come to you first. The message seems to be at least from the United States, from the UK, even from NATO, their actions speak louder than words. And irrespective of what Russia is saying about a de-escalation of troops, they're seeing the opposite and worrying signs. 
Yeah, they, uh, they are seeing the opposite. I mean, this is quite a radical increase in estimated troop numbers. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the United States and others were talking about 100,000 troops massed on or near the borders with Ukraine. And that's in a big arc of territory, uh, Julia, from the, in, the, in the far east, right around to due north of uh, Kiev up into Belarus. Now they're talking about 150,000 at a time when the Russians are insisting that they are downsizing the scale of their deployments in Crimea and in east of the, uh, rather to the east of Ukraine, in the western district, as it's called uh, for Russia, the western military district, saying that at the end of the operations, the exercises in those areas, those troops are returning back to their permanent barracks. A denial, uh, or at least cynicism, is coming from not only the Ukrainians, but also we heard there from Jens Stoltenberg. So what we've got is this push-pull thing going on, and then we're seeing the same thing now with uh, Ukrainian analysis saying that they don't believe that the Russians have enough troops to conduct an invasion. Now that may be slightly passing the issue uh, in that if you want to do an invasion, you can do it with any number of troops. It's quite kind of a question of what you want to do with that invasion. Do you want to topple the government? Do you want to slice off a bit of territory? Uh, do you want to cause instability and then simply leave? Or do you want to occupy uh, the whole nation? And as the uh, US-led allies discovered in Iraq, any number of troops, if you're fighting an insurgency, could, could insurgency is unlikely to be enough. So it's a very long uh, issue that one. But I think ultimately there is a sense still in the Western powers that the nation of Ukraine is in uh, near mortal danger from uh, a Russian invasion. But again, on this day of unity, a day uh, slightly ironically that the president here declared a day of unity because it had been one of the dates given out by uh, American analysts inside the administration of uh, uh, President Biden as a potential day for a Russian invasion. That has, ha hasn't happened here in Kharkiv, a fairly low-key uh, marking of the day, people wearing the symbols of the national flag, but going around their business as per usual. Now, one other thing to note here, Julia, is un unlike in Kiev, where there are large amounts of uh, Soviet-era bunkers have been opened up, uh, very few of them, we understand from our friends and uh, connections here, have been opened in Kharkiv, and some of them are uh, many of them are simply locked up or flooded. There isn't even that level of preparation just 25 miles from the Russian border. Yeah, I mean, you raised some great points there, Sam, and particularly the point about what's required for an invasion here. But at least that intelligence report, I think, is consistent with what the government's been trying to do in terms of um, reducing panic and instilling calm relative to some of the other messages that we're hearing from, from other nations. Melissa, in line with that, if you're there, do I still have you? No. I think I can see her telling me that she's lost me there. Sam, um, I just wanted to ask, actually, the relevance of what took place in the Russian parliament this week, the, the Duma, if you, can, if you can clarify what happened there and the push by the parliament for Vladimir Putin to recognise the independence of a couple of the areas in the Donbass region in the east of Ukraine, uh, Lugansk and uh, Donetsk. Obviously, if they were recognised as independent, that would contravene the, the Minsk agreement, the peace agreement that was signed after the invasion of Crimea in 2014. What do you see happening here? Well, it's a long and slightly painful process, if you like. It's symbolically very important and the timing's not lost on the Ukrainians. Today, uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister reiterated the long-standing commitment that this country has 
uh, to regain control not only of those uh, two self-declared republics uh, in uh, the Donbass region, which is a small region opposite uh, essentially Rostov-on-Don uh, in Russia, but also the Crimean Peninsula, which has been formally annexed to Russia. As far as the Russians are concerned, that is already uh, or has been returned, as they would put it, uh, back into Mother Russia as part of the motherland. That is not the case for these two breakaway republics in the east of the country. The process, Julia, is a little bit convoluted. They have to go through several readings of the Duma and other councils. Then they need to go to the federal council. And then it needs a sign-off from uh, Vladimir Putin. And then they would join a kind of uh, potentially a, the recognized areas that uh, Russia lays claim to uh, elsewhere, such as North Ossetia and others uh, that have been granted a similar sort of status. Uh, it's all fairly vague in terms of, certainly clear in international law, that these are completely unrecognized status, that, that this would be an area of territory that would firmly remain in Ukrainian hands. But there is opportunities there for a bit of wriggle room down the line with uh, discussions over greater legal autonomy uh, from the central government in uh, Kiev. Uh, but one of the central issues in those negotiations is that the Ukrainians will not speak to any of the leadership in those breakaway republics, the leadership that they insist are nothing more than terrorists, and they will only speak, that is the Ukrainians I'm talking about, uh, directly to the Russians, whom they hold responsible for those responsible, if you see what I mean, inside that Russian back, those Russian-backed breakaway republics, Julia. Yeah, I just find the timing uh, uncanny in light of the suggestion from the Russians that they are withdrawing troops at the same time, this discussion perhaps of a push to recognise independence of these regions, which is another mm. pressure point for Ukraine. Um, Sam, thank you for that. Melissa, just come in two seconds. I think I, I have you back now. The message seems to be from NATO. Look, we welcome the suggestion from Russia that you're planning to de-escalate and remove troops, but we need to see the proof. Uh, we need to see the proof, and for the time being, Jen Stoltenberg, quite clear, Julia, as he headed into that meeting that's underway even now between NATO defence ministers, that in fact this, the evidence, as far as NATO is concerned, is that for the time being that build-up continues. Now, what's happening inside that meeting right now is the defence ministers uh, are, are sharing with each other the intelligence they have, are reporting back to one another the communications, and there have been so many uh, diplomatic meetings these last couple of weeks between so many different NATO leaders and Russia and Ukraine. This is a chance for all of them to get back together and bang heads and bring together the information that they've collected and have another look at the intelligence together. It is also, Julian, perhaps more importantly, an opportunity to decide what they're going to do with all of those allied troops that have been brought in to shore up uh, NATO's eastern flank. Now, 5,000 American troops that are up to be added to the 8,500 American troops that are already on a heightened uh, sense of alert. Uh, the United Kingdom's pledged troops, France as well, uh, uh, between 25 and 30, that would be all of NATO uh, countries, have pledged or have already deployed extra troops. That is according to sources within NATO. What that meeting is about today is working out, should there be an invasion of Ukraine, what do those troops then do? Now, what we understand from NATO sources is that there would be three potential triggers to a NATO response force being actioned. Uh, that would be, first of all, of course, any direct attack on a NATO country, uh, uh, any humanitarian catastrophe with allied troops preparing for the flood of refugees that would no doubt come across Ukraine's border into countries like Poland, but also the problem of a mistake happening, a misunderstanding, some kind of accident that might lead 
to a direct engagement of Allied troops against Russian troops. And when you bear in mind, uh, Julia, that along the border between Belarus and Poland, uh, there are on one hand active Allied troops and on the other active Russian troops now engaged in those military exercises, the fears for a potential accident miscalculation are extremely real. So that's what's going on in the meeting. We're going to hear from the Secretary General later on today, no doubt more about exactly what's been decided. Yes, careful management required. Sam Kiley, Melissa Bell. There. Thank you both for that. In around five minutes' time, I'll be speaking to the former Ukrainian president, Petra Poroshenko, to get his take on what he sees taking place. For now, let's move on. COVID surge in Asia. South Korea seeing record daily cases with more than 90,000 new infections in one day. Singapore and Malaysia also report a spike in cases. And in China, President Xi Jinping telling Hong Kong to take all necessary measures to control its fifth wave. As Chrissy Liu Stout reports. Chinese President Xi Jinping is urging the Hong Kong government to take the main responsibility to stabilize a growing COVID-19 outbreak. This according to local pro-Beijing media on Wednesday. Quoting Xi, they say the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region government should take up the main responsibility. It should mobilize all forces and resources that can be mobilized and take all necessary measures to protect Hong Kong people's lives and health, as well as ensure Hong Kong's social stability. The reports add that Beijing will help Hong Kong by boosting its testing, treatment and quarantine capacity. Hong Kong's top leader, Carrie Lam, issued a response thanking Xi for his concern while promising to unite Hong Kong to fight the virus. Now, Xi's message comes as Hong Kong grapples with a growing fifth wave of infection. On Wednesday, the city reported 4,285 new daily COVID-19 cases and 7,000 more preliminary positive cases, a significant rise from the previous day. A number of public hospitals are running out of beds and some have set up outdoor treatment areas. At the Caritas Medical Center, patients are waiting outside for care. The parking lot has been turned into a field hospital and isolation facility. Now, despite the worsening situation, Carrie Lam on Tuesday said that the city remains committed to its dynamic zero COVID strategy, a policy designed to suppress every outbreak. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, and coming up here on First Move, a day for unity and another day for diplomacy. Former Ukrainian President Petra Poroshenko joins us after the break. And later, windows of opportunity for Microsoft. There's nothing micro about their buying spree. The question is, who's next? Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story. An intelligence report from Ukraine obtained exclusively by CNN suggests Russia does not have enough troops in place to invade. And the country declares a day of unity in defiance of the threat of a Russian invasion. Moscow releasing videos of tanks and troops that it says are pulling back from Crimea. And today, NATO defense ministers meet, as do Russian President Vladimir Putin and Brazil's Shair Bolsonaro. In the meantime, Petra Poroshenko was Ukraine's president before the Zelensky administration and dealt with the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. He's also an entrepreneur and businessman and was head of the National Bank. After his presidency ended, he was charged with treason, a charge he strongly denies. And I'm pleased to say he joins us now live. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show with me. Great to talk to you once again. Can I start by asking whether, in your view, in light of what we've seen in recent days, has the risk facing Ukraine reduced 
in any way in your view? Patrick, can you hear me? Uh, do you hear it, Joe? No. Uh, yeah, uh, the, I, I hardly hear you, but uh, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you and keeping Ukraine very high in the agenda. This is now crucial not only for Ukraine, but for the global security and for our global values. And uh, we definitely celebrate today not only the Day of Unity, but the day when the uh, aggression and invasion is not happening. And this is start to be possible because the absolutely active role of our partners in NATO, partners in the European Union, an absolutely crucial leading role of the American administration and uh, President uh, Biden, uh, State Secretary Blinken, and all, all, of, all of the team. I think that this battle, which happening today, when Putin start to blackmail in Ukraine, blackmail in Europe and blackmail in world, same way like he do in the year 2000, uh, 2014 and in April this year, he lost this battle. And I uh, congratulate the whole, the whole world with that. But the challenge is still present. And if you want to separate the uh, escalation, we have a two types of escalation, hard and soft. For the hard escalation, we still have 140,000 Russian troops alongside of Ukrainian Russian border and 30,000 troops in Belarusian Ukrainian border, Russian troops which is present in the Anschluss Belarus. And we don't have an attack today, but we should keep very strong uh, to be ready for the attack of Putin in future. And this is not happening, the de-escalation. But we have Petra? another form. Sorry, Petra, we have another forgive me for interrupting, but you raise a very important point. President Putin said yesterday he doesn't want war. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Uh, this is a very good question because I have a two recommendations to the whole world. Uh, my advice number one, don't trust Putin, because when I was a president of Ukraine since the year 2014, he promising me uh, long, many, many times, starting from the Minsk 1, Minsk 2, Minsk 3, releasing Ukrainian prisoner, and nothing happened. Please don't trust Putin. And uh, second recommendation, please don't be afraid of Putin. And third, because Putin go as far as we allow them to go when we uh, afraid of him. And uh, advice number three: keep unity, uh, be uh, so keep demonstrate the solidarity with Ukraine. And this is the only way how we can keep the world safe, keep the Western value uh, protected, keep the freedom, keep democracy, keep Ukraine. And with this situation, I very much happy that at least United States, NATO, Europe speak the language which I speak in the year 2014, Ukraine speak in the year 2014. And definitely this is the great progress who can save the world. And I am again want to thank the whole Western world for supporting uh, global security. We understand. You mentioned de-escalation too, and today there is confusion. Would you like to see 
de-escalation defined in terms of numbers? Because President Putin could remove 50,000 troops and there would still be 100,000 troops remaining. That, to me, is a problem. We don't have actually any confirmation about withdrawal of 50,000 troops. This is just a declaration of Putin, but unfortunately troops is uh, remaining in the same place. And uh, the second thing is that the, uh, we have not only hard uh, escalation, but soft ex- escalation. And soft escalation means that yesterday Ukraine was an object for the biggest cyber attack in the history. It, there was attack our government side, our minister of defense side, our uh, side of the president. And uh, with that situation, uh, I'm absolutely confident that uh, we don't have happening the, this de-escalation. Yesterday, the state Duma voted for the uh, request to the president Putin for the recognition of the occupied territory as independent state. This is uh, de facto means that uh, the Putin withdraw Russia from the Minsk agreement. Putin want to have additional pressure to the free world. And with this situation, we need uh, three things how to support Ukraine. Point number one, we need a sanction. Sanction to make Russia weaker, sanction to motivate Putin not doing these type of things. And sanction would be in the form for stopping Nord Stream 2 as a form of the political pressure for European Union and for Ukraine and to disassemble, to make a ruin the unity of European Union. We need a sanction uh, answering for blackmailing Putin for prohibited Ukraine to be a NATO member state. Instead of that, Definitely this year, summer this year in Madrid summit, NATO should give to Ukraine and to Georgia the membership action plan as the right answer for the Putin blackmail. Point number two, this is the support of the defensive capability of Ukraine. We should learn very attentively the experience of land lease from the Second World War. And with this situation, definitely we should increase defensive capability. We should supply the new type of weapons, significantly increase it. We don't need American or NATO soldiers on our soil, but we definitely need to increase the effectiveness of Ukrainian armed forces. And I'm proud in the year 2014-15, I have created the new Ukrainian army, which is now one of the most strongest in Europe. But Petra. Uh, again, Against Ukraine, we have uh, the second biggest, second strongest army in the world. And uh, they have a state-of-the-art technology. And definitely we should have uh, weapons to protect our, our land. And uh, point number three is to increase the resilience of Ukraine. And definitely we should have an assistance from US, from EU, uh, for providing reform, which was launched by my team. This is anti-corruption reform, this is the decentralization reform, reform of security sector, reform of the civil society. This is to uh, help us to meet the criteria for the future. I understand. Petro, Petro, you and I have known each other many years now because I chased you on the campaign trail in 2014 and I interviewed you when you first became president. And one of the things that we discussed at that time that makes Ukraine vulnerable are things like corruption, a lack of trust in institutions, the need for reform. And I know you began that work, but more work 
needs to be done. Is Ukraine strong enough to stand alone today? First of all, I want to thank the uh, United States, American people, American Congress for bipartisan support for the reform, including the anti-corruption reform I launched uh, in my country. I'm proud that I create absolutely independent and effective now uh, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, National Anti-Corruption Prosecution Office, the High uh, Supreme Anti-Corruption Court, which is now put in jail a long list of the, of the uh, corruptionists who is uh, catching on the corruption uh, when we create this infrastructure. Unfortunately, now we have a backslide of the reform. Unfortunately, now, because uh, lots of the uh, people from the President Zelensky team is very heavily involved in the corruption, they are uh, stop and suspend the appointment of the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor, uh, appoint and suspend the role of the international experts in the Commission for appointing them, and definitely also we need, as a precondition for the cooperation, the effective and firm position of our partners for continuation of the reform, for fighting against corruption, and that was the only uh, things how we can move our country, uh, not back to the Russian Empire, but directly to the uh, European Union, to the future NATO membership. It's such a critical point. Petra, I want to ask finally, do you trust NATO? Do you trust President Biden to support Ukraine and do whatever it takes to allow Ukraine to resist an invasion if it comes? First of all, I am very much happy that I have an experience to work with the President Biden for many, many years. And I think that he played a crucial role since the year 2014 because he came to my inauguration and we spent more than three hours to discuss our future cooperation. And uh, I definitely trust the President Biden and I definitely trust NATO because uh, I was very much happy to hear yesterday the very strong words which President Biden said in their statement. And these strong words was, uh, was demonstrated that the, uh, this is not just the aggression Russia against Ukraine. This is not just a fighting and just a question of Russia and Ukraine. This is, uh, President Biden confirmed that, this is the uh, question for the global security, this is the question for the values of the Western world, and now everybody uh, in U.S., everybody in EU, understand that this is not just an assist in Ukraine, this is not just a support in Ukraine, this is just an investment in their own security. Uh, both in the U.S. and both in the EU. And the uh, success of Ukraine in this fighting, this is definitely success of the United States, success of NATO, and success of the European Union. And for the NATO, it simply not exists any other mechanism who can provide the security. No Budapest Memorandum, no Minsk Agreement, no, because there is not uh, any effective mechanism for punishment for the violation of the Minsk agreement for the country aggressive. Putin, by making aggression against Ukraine, completely ruined all post-war security system based on the Security Council of the United Nations. And now the only uh, mechanism who can protect Ukraine uh, would be our future membership in NATO. The only mechanism who can stop Russia for destroying democratic institution is NATO. And with that situation, Ukraine are ready 
to be shoulder in shoulder with the other member states and to demonstrate that Ukraine uh, uh, privilege and the uh, effectiveness of Ukrainian membership in NATO, this is the win-win cooperation with other NATO member states. With that situation, that we should uh, receive the membership action plan of NATO uh, for Ukraine and for Georgia. Sir, thank you so much for your time. Petra Poroshenko, former president of Ukraine, and I appreciate there were terrible sound issues yeah, there. Thank you very so much. Thank you for your time and for, for bearing with us. We're back after this. Stay with us. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening lower this Wednesday with tech stocks actually pacing the declines. Global investors cautious as NATO warns that Russia is continuing its troop buildup near Ukraine. The U.S. is now saying it is yet to see any meaningful pullback of Russian forces, despite assurances from Moscow that some troops are returning to bases. Oil remains a main gauge of investor nervousness, with Brent crude touching $95 a barrel in recent trade. As you can see, we're just below that today. Data from financial advisory firm RSM, shared exclusively with CNN, says if the Ukraine crisis worsens and oil spikes to $110 a barrel, U.S. inflation would soar into double digits. Inflation already a number one concern for U.S. consumers, but they are still shopping. Retail sales rising a better than expected 3.8 percent last month, the biggest rise in 10 months and a turnaround from December's unexpected drop. And bucking the trend too, luxury fashion took a hit during the pandemic, but MyTeresa, the global e-commerce platform with brands like Prada, Gucci and Tom Ford, seems to have made its mark on the industry. Earnings for its most recent quarter show growth in the tight market, including a record number of first-time buyers. The company recently partnered with Vestiaire, which re-features pre-owned designer fashions, and announced a commitment to become carbon neutral. Michael Klieger is CEO of MyTeresa, and he joins us now. Michael, fantastic to have you on the show. Much to discuss, but the standout for me from your earnings actually was the growth that you're seeing and the strength of demand in the United States, a place that you call void for a true luxury player, a void for a true luxury player. Talk to me about what you're seeing there specifically. Thanks, Julia, for having me. Yes, I mean, we were very pleased with our second quarter results. We posted a 26% increase in GMV, and the U.S. was the fastest growing market for us, with 74% growth in the second quarter compared to previous year. And we see a huge demand for true luxury. Um, the, the consumer is out there. The consumer is looking for opportunities to dress up. So it's really the dresses, the shoes, the clutches, the unique pieces that uh, U.S. consumers are looking for. And they seem to increasingly lean on into my Teresa to find them. Are you fighting, though, for a, a larger share of a smaller pie? Because we did see the overall luxury market contract. I just wonder how big you anticipate the online luxury market can get as a proportion of the, the entire business, whether we're talking the United States or, or globally. Um, the online share in luxury is actually still to expand heavily. It's estimated that at the moment, slightly above 20% of, of luxury is bought online. And most uh, consumer research companies estimate that this share will go up to 30% by 25. And we are the leading platform for the busy shopper, for the professional shopper that loves luxury, but doesn't have the time to go to stores 
and really loves the multi-brand curation that we offer. And that is really unique about My Teresa. 250 of the best brands, highly curated, serving the professional customer that is time constrained. And that gives us this unique opportunity to grow 26% overall, much faster in the US and be profitable. <laughs> That's the other story. We, yes. we are profitable. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. It's funny how um, we get very excited about that, like it's something rare. Um, you know, if we go back five years, there were questions about, to your point, uh, luxury's ability to, to be sold online. There were questions about what the resale market meant for some of these luxury brands. And it would have been the same question for a site like yourself. Fast forward to today and you're saying there's still huge growth online and you're doing deals with these kind of, of um, secondhand resale sites. Um, does it sort of suggest an embracing of what the customer wants rather than perhaps what brands want or what the luxury market tells consumers that they should be, should be buying? I mean, you're right on. I mean, my Teresa's success is due to the customer focus. We yeah. listen to the customer. We try to please our customers as much as possible with services. And, and online creates a luxury experience, but is really for the time-constrained shopper. And, and if anything, more and more professional, successful women, men feel that they have less time at their hand. And we solve for that still with inspiration, with luxuriously packaged uh, shipments. And, and this is a trend that continues. And uh, the same for resale. I mean, we have customers that love fashion, that always want the latest. Luxury pieces are very well made. Materials is excellent. So after a season, our customer may, may not feel that they want to wear this piece still, but it's still of outstanding quality. And with resale, um, these loved products find new homes and it underlines the longevity of luxury pieces and it mm. combines again the resale convenience and of course a commitment to sustainability because via Vestiaire Collective, our partner, we have incorporated circularity into our business model. Yeah, I saw that um, and that's quite fascinating. Um, you've promised you'll be carbon neutral this year and I know you've allowed customers the option to buy something, get it delivered to them and be carbon neutral themselves, which I think is a really important point. Um, I do want to ask you, though, as well, because I certainly allegedly see it in, in retail shops here in the United States, reduced inventory, prices going up. What are you seeing in terms of, and I know you've said in the past, look, actually, you've managed your supply chains incredibly well, particularly in Europe, and you're not seeing pressure. But what are you seeing in terms of inventory and supplies and also prices rising? So second quarter, we, we have been very proud to have been able to completely continue operations by protecting our, our staff and focusing on health. So we have not been really impacted. We did see uh, some delays in shipping around the Christmas holidays because of um, online being swamped with orders, but there was some shortages in workforce due to Omicron. And, and there are continues to be pockets here and there where maybe shortages of workforce, delays, production. But we get all our products or almost all our products here in Europe. We are based in Europe. I mean, most of our brands are Italian, French luxury houses. And so we have by far not suffered from supply chain issues of uh, supply chains spanning across the globe. Inflation 
it is happening. It is also happening in luxury. Um, but here, of course, we are dealing with a very special consumer segment. Um, this segment has the wealth, has the means, as long as the product is desirable, uh, fills emotional needs and dreams. Uh, we have not seen that price increases have led to slower demand. I mean, not that we have seen that in a decade. Yes, the luxury of operating in the luxury market. I think that's the message there. Michael, congrats on the results and um, we'll continue the, the conversation again soon. Great to have you on the show. The CEO of My Teresa there, Michael Glieger. Thank you. We're back after Thank this. You. Welcome back to First Move and back to our top story once again. The latest Ukrainian military intelligence report obtained by CNN suggests Russia's current troop levels surrounding Ukraine are not enough to invade. Matthew Chance has that report and joins us now. Matthew, great to have you with us. What more can you tell us about this report? Well, it's a very interesting report. It was given to us exclusively this morning. It comes from Ukrainian military intelligence. And basically it says um, uh, that, uh, first of all, it looks at the direction of travel of the uh, Russian military buildup and saying that's been increasing. It's increased to approximately 148,000 troops, Russian troops, ground, air and sea, more than 148, it says, which brings the assessment very much in line with the latest figures we got from the United States with President Biden on Tuesday night in his address saying there were about 150,000 Russian troops there. So there's a degree of agreement there. But there is deviation. Uh, from the United States assessment when it comes to what the intention is or what the capability is of those troops. The latest uh, Ukrainian intelligence assessment uh, saying that even at that level, Russia does not have sufficient forces in place near Ukraine's borders to stage a large-scale uh, uh, military attack against Ukraine. It doesn't mean they wouldn't try it, of course. It doesn't mean uh, that um, it wouldn't be a smaller-scale operation that could be, could, could, could be uh, set in motion. But in terms of a large-scale, full invasion, basically, uh, that's something that Ukrainian uh, intelligence officials assess is unlikely to happen uh, with the current level of forces uh, in the region. Acknowledging that, the report goes on to say, what Russia is emphasising uh, is uh, trying to cause destabilisation inside Ukraine through pulling economic levers, using energy as a weapon, and cyber attacks. And that, of course, tallies with some of the uh, reports we've had coming out of Ukraine in the past 24 hours or so. There was a big cyber attack, uh, a, a distributed denial of service attack, for instance, that put down a defence ministry website and, a, and a, a website of a private commercial bank as well. And so we are seeing these kinds of regular kinds of cyber attacks, which in the past have been blamed or suspected of being the responsibility of actors inside Russia and elsewhere as well. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting as we see this build up and as we see these, these optimistic signs relative that Russia is prepared to, in, uh, to negotiate further and that Russia is prepared to draw down some of its forces near, near to the border of Ukraine. We're still seeing the latest Ukrainian assessment uh, saying there is a build up of forces, but it's not at the level that would uh, warrant uh, you know, acute concern uh, for an immediate attack. Yes, consistent with the government's efforts to downplay the risks here and, and not to provoke panic, I think. Matthew Chance, great job. Thank you so much for that. 
Now, a major Bank development bank tied to the World Bank Group is accused of providing funds to businesses using forced labour in China. The claims come in a report compiled by the UK-based Helena Kennedy Centre for International Justice. Ivan Watson joins us with the details on this. Ivan, great to have you with us. What more do we know about those that have been receiving the money and the due diligence required in order to allow them to receive it? Yeah, the, the report... The timing is very interesting because because the U.S. government has been leading a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics, uh, accusing China of genocidal policies in Xinjiang of the mass internment of up to two million ethnic Uyghurs. So this report, which is called Financing Genocide, uh, it accuses the International Finance Corporation. It's the, the private investment arm of the World Bank, which is aimed at poverty alleviation and financing environmentally sound businesses, accuses it of putting some $486 million into four Chinese companies with operations in Xinjiang, companies that the report accuses of participating in and benefiting from uh, forced labor programs, from compulsory land appropriation programs, from doing things like uh, having factories and facilities in close proximity to suspected internment camps. And there are some satellite images that can show the growth of one of these suspected internment facilities and how close some of these factories are uh, nearby to this. Uh, the report goes on to say that the IFC doesn't seem to have adequate monitoring and due diligence to make sure that its standards of uh, that human rights are not being abused in the companies that are receiving this investment, that there is an independent verification. Uh, for instance, the report uh, claims that there was only one group from the IFC that went in 2019 to Xinjiang. They only were on the ground for about 24 hours and they were reportedly detained by police no less than three times during that period. Of course, reporters like CNN, we have a very difficult time doing anything independently in the Xinjiang region. Uh, the uh, this is all the more striking because the U.S. government is the largest independent stakeholder in uh, the IFC. Uh, so this seems to run contradictory to the U.S. government's own policies. Yeah, Julia. that raises huge, huge questions. What are the IFC saying in response to this report? What's China saying, Ivan? Right. Well, we've reached out uh, to the companies, uh, which did not respond, but we've independently verified that they did receive IFC funding and that they did use some of that money uh, to, to finance operations in Xinjiang. The Chinese government, the foreign ministry, wrote to CNN, quote, China has repeatedly emphasized that the so-called issues of forced labor and repression against ethnic minorities are huge lies concocted by anti-China forces in the U.S., and the West, they're entirely baseless, goes on to say that attempts to attack and smear China are bound to fail. Now, the IFC did not respond to specific questions from CNN. It did issue a statement saying that it does not tolerate discrimination or forced labor under any circumstances. And whenever serious allegations are brought to their attention, they'll work uh, to verify them. I do have to say, Julia, that I have reported on the issue of forced labor uh, in Xinjiang. I've interviewed people who say they have been sent to internment camps, then released on condition that they work for almost no money in terrible conditions in factories uh, under threat that they would be sent back into detention if they complained or refused to work. Julia? 
Yeah, Ivan, great reporting. Thank you so much for that. Ivan Watson there. Stay with First Move. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. Satya Nadella is one busy fella as he seals mega deals at Microsoft. Forget the metaverse, it's all about the mergerverse. Paula Monica joins me now. We can't forget about the metaverse because actually a lot of this is tied to the metaverse. It's good to be a shopaholic when you have lots of cash to spend. Yeah, definitely. He's got a lot of cash, uh, you know, burning a hole in uh, Microsoft's corporate coffers. Julia, $130 billion in cash. That pile will get smaller, assuming the Activision Blizzard deal goes through, because that's a purchase price of nearly $70 billion in cash. And that's just the biggest and latest major acquisition for Microsoft under Nadella. This is a company that bought uh, a software, cloud software company Nuance last year. They bought the Xander uh, digital ad business from our parent company, AT&T, for about a billion dollars. And Microsoft has done several deals since Nadella took over, LinkedIn obviously being the biggest and boldest up until the Activision Blizzard deal. Yeah, you know, whether you're thinking about the growth that they're making in cloud, in chips, in gaming, I often wonder what's going to differentiate these companies in the end for, for clients. And it comes down to how well you protect them, I think, the security. So I think one of my big questions, particularly in light of some of the smaller acquisitions they've made, and of course, Microsoft's role in the SolarWinds cyber attack and bringing that to light, do you think Mandiant, the cybersecurity firm, is going to be the next acquisition, Paul? It could be. That's what the chatter has been, Julia. Last week, uh, Mandiant stock went up a little bit on rumors that maybe Microsoft was going to buy them next. During Mandiant's earnings call, the CEO declined to you know, give any of those rumors or speculation any credence, saying they're not going to talk about it. Microsoft, when I reached out to them, also said they do not comment on any uh, chatter, any rumor speculation, but that talk is definitely out there. And, you know, uh, Mandiant, uh, about a four and a half billion dollar market cap. That's a lot of that having to do with the price going up on the speculation. But four and a half billion, that's, you know, chump change for Satya Nadella if you're going to spend almost 70 billion on an Activision Blizzard. Yeah, peanuts. Worth the price to me, I think, at whatever price given the challenges that we're facing. I've just realized we have a name for the segment or even a show, Chattering with Chatterley. Chatter, <laughs> chatter with Chatterley. Yeah, yeah. You're rapping very well. I know. Yeah, how about we rap? <laughs> yeah, Paula Monica, thank you for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN as always. And in the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next and I'll be back tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. 
Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 